And just to kind of recap a little bit, we are continuing our series that I've entitled Refocus. And what we're doing is we are going through the uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we are just kind of following through Jesus's life, his ministry, the things that uh, he taught, the things that he did, and we're getting a better understanding of who Jesus is, of uh, what he's about, of what he taught, because I think that our our own preferences, our misconceptions, religion, different things today has greatly skewed, has greatly muddied the waters about who Jesus is. We have our, our own ideas about it, and if we just strip all that away and we just get back to the Word of God and let it speak for itself and let Jesus show us, demonstrate to us who he is, uh, that clarifies all of it. Mm-hmm. And so what we looked at last week, uh, we are in Jesus' final months. This is probably the last three to six months of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross, and he is preparing his disciples, but he's also provoking the religious leaders. All along, he has been very careful going about his father's plan, his father's program. Uh, he has said several times his his time is not yet, but now his time is approaching. And so as it's going, he is doing things that shows who he is, that asserts his deity, and th- these things are going to provoke the religious leaders. They're not going to be happy with him because they've rejected him. He hasn't aligned with them. He hasn't went through the way that they wanted him to go. He hasn't uh, upheld their traditions and their teachings and their power. And so he's become their enemy. And so as he is healing people, as he is ministering to the people that they don't like, as he is pointing out their hypocrisy and as he is pointing out the things that they are doing that is contrary to Scripture, they're getting more and more angry with him. And what it ends up doing is it's going to end up causing them to crucify him, which we know that he's the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth, from the foundation of the world. It wasn't that they crucified him because of their own doings, but it was fulfilling the prophecies. It was fulfilling the will of God because he came to die. He came to give himself as a sacrifice for mankind. And so the cross wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a mistake. It was all part of God's plan. And so Jesus is provoking the religious leaders to basically to put him on the cross. And so anyway, they thought they were doing these things of their own accord. They thought they were doing it with their own will, but God was uh, working the things that they meant for evil for his good. And so anyway, last week what we looked at was Jesus had been spending time with uh, the multitude, and within the multitude, there was the religious leaders, there was the Pharisees, there was the ones who were just waiting for him to make a mistake or a misstep so that they could attack him or discredit him. There were also those who were following him just because they were curious or they wanted to see a miracle or they wanted to benefit, they wanted some loaves and some fishes again. <laughs> there were those that were still kind of straddling the fence, they were trying to determine what they believed about Jesus, and then there were those who believed and were his disciples. So he had multitudes following him that were made up of this diverse group. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were murmuring. They were complaining because Jesus uh, spent time with the publicans and sinners, with the outcasts, with the ones that the Pharisees despised, the undesirables, if you will. And so Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son. And he told about this son who had abandoned the father, went far away from him, mistreated the father, and ended up in the pig pen. But whenever he realized that he had messed up, that he had sinned against the father, he came back home, the father received him gladly, and the older brother was mad about it. 
And in that story, we know that the prodigal was the publicans and the sinners, that Jesus was the father, and that the Pharisees were the older brother in the story. And so what we learn from this is that God loves the Pharisees and the publicans. He loves the prodigals as much as he does the religious people. And he loves them not because of what they have done or what they have to offer, but because of who he is. And so whenever we look at God, God loves the world, not because he receives anything from us, not because we behave well, not because of how we act, but he loves the world because of who he is and his nature toward us. And he is a good God. He is a great God. But in this, we found also that for whenever we have the tendency to wonder, whenever we have that prodigal spirit in us, whenever we want the the blessings of God, whenever we want to enjoy the things that God has to offer, but we don't want to follow him, whenever we live in sin, whenever we go the way of the world, the world is always going to cost us more than we want to pay and keep us longer than we want to stay. Okay, And so the prodigal ended up in the pig pen, and whenever we abandon God, whenever we go according to our own flesh, we go to the way of the world, we are going to end up in heartache and in turmoil, but we know that God is always willing to accept us back. The devil will show us, will tell us, you messed up, you went too far, there's no way that you can go back. Our own flesh will say we have to earn our way back. But knowing the heart of the Father, he is always willing to forgive. He's always willing to accept us back. But then there's also times that we are prone to be the Pharisee. Whenever we think that we deserve all these great rewards and payments because, God, look at how faithfully I've served you. Look at how moral I am. Look at how religious I am. So God owes me something. And all these other people who aren't serving God, they deserve what they get. And we start looking down on them. We need to be careful that we realize that nothing we have is our own. Nothing that we have is because of our goodness. It is all because of God and his goodness. And we would be in the same state as that prodigal in the hog pen if it wasn't for God. And so we have no place to look down on the prodigal, and we have no place to uh, to look down on God and that he has uh, in any way treated us unfairly because anything that we have exceeds what we deserve. Okay? And so in all of this, the Pharisees were listening to this story, and they would have seen the older brother as the hero in the story. Okay, They would have said the older brother is the one who did right. And on top of that, he didn't, he didn't run off into the hog pen. He didn't go off into the world. He stayed faithfully. He served. And then whenever all of these things came about, he demanded respect. He called out sin. He called out injustice. You go, older brother. They would have been cheering for him. But the Pharisees had no grace. They had no mercy. They were constantly strict. They were constantly and unrelentingly uh, casting down anyone who didn't meet their standards. And so in their mind, this strict adherence to the law made them superior. Their traditions that they had made them feel superior, and they used that position to get gain and to get wealth and to get power. And they had the wrong idea that wealth and power meant that God was pleased with them. They said, look at how successful I am. 
Look at the house I live in, the car that I drive, the money in my bank account. I know they didn't drive cars, but anyway, the money that's in my bank account. They said, look at how God has blessed my life. God must truly be pleased with me. But that led them to also believe the opposite, is that they looked at the man who was suffering, the man that was struggling, the man who was diseased or that was in poverty, the man that was having trouble, and they said, he must be wicked. Look at how God is repaying him. And so they said, this man deserves what he's getting, and we deserve what we are getting. They kind of had this idea that, that permeates all of society, this idea almost of, of karmic justice. Okay? And so they're saying, if my life goes good, it's because God, the gods are happy. If my life goes bad, it's because I have offended the gods. And so in some way, we are playing a game, trying to leverage, trying to appease God so that he will make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. <laughs> and that was wrong. And so Jesus is coming as all of the, the infirm and all of the poor and all of the outcasts are flocking to him, and he is preaching to them. He's showing love to them. He's healing their wounds, and he's extending mercy to them. All of the crowd that's following after Jesus are the very same ones that the religious crowd disdains. And the ones that are rejecting Jesus are the ones who feel like they're performing well and God's happy with them. And on top of that, Jesus himself was poor. We talked about that earlier, right? Jesus himself was poor. And so they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, you have no wealth, you have no money. You're just traveling around, uh, staying in people's houses and their barns, sleeping along the sides of the road. You don't have anything of wealth, but look at us. God has rewarded us greatly. And we can find even more to, to uh, show us this is their belief system because a few weeks ago we looked at the man that was born blind. What was their question? They said, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? His condition is directly related to somebody's sin. Okay? That was the way that they looked at it. Job's friends were the same way. They said, Job, you're suffering because you're a sinner. And so what Jesus is doing in this passage that's before us today, and I know we haven't read it yet, but what he is doing in this passage that's before us today is correcting the way that they are looking at things. Now, we're going to skip over the, the first parable in Luke chapter number 16, but Jesus tells a parable about a, a steward who has been unjust, that has behaved wrongly with his Lord's money, and he schemes in such a way whenever he's about to lose his job in order to ensure him eternal benefits, okay? Or not eternal benefits, but benefits after he loses his job. And Jesus looks at him and uses him as an example, and he says, this man used the things that he was entrusted with to gain him rewards, and he said, this is what we need to be doing with the things that God has entrusted us with, with uh, our riches, with our wealth and whatnot, we need to be taking these things and using them for God's glory and for eternal benefits, okay? And this idea that we are stewards of the things that God has given us rather than God rewarding us for our behavior was for these men. They mocked, they laughed at Jesus and said, it's easy for you to say to give away money, for you to say to use your wealth in these ways to steward them for God because you have no money. Right? He says, it's easy for you to say that. You have no money. And so that brings us to our passage that we're, today, we're in today, and it is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. 
And in this story, Jesus is challenging uh, their thinking, their wrong priorities. He's challenging uh, the way that they're looking at life. And he is showing that they would see life differently. They would live life differently if they lived in light of eternity. So let's look at Luke chapter number 16. And we'll start reading at verse number 19. It says, There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abram afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the time and your word and the fellowship with one another. And we ask you, Lord, that you'd just bless these next several moments, Lord, as I uh, expound on these scriptures, Lord. I just pray that you would help us to apply them to our lives. Help us, Lord, uh, to uh, be able to to restructure, to, to renew our way of looking at things, Lord, that we would see things with eternity in view. And we just ask you, Lord, that you would guide and direct, Lord, that you do the needed work in the hearts and lives of each person here. All these things we pray in Jesus' name, and amen. Uh, I believe that this is a true story. Uh, we look through a lot of the parables that Jesus teaches, and as he's teaching through the parables, he is using kind of an earthly story to, to get across a heavenly meaning. But whenever we come to this story, it doesn't have the normal marks of a parable. For one thing, uh, it has him using actual names. In other parables, he doesn't give names. He says it's like this or it's like that. But here he says there was a rich man and there was a beggar who was named Lazarus. Uh, I believe that it may have even been that some of the people in his audience and his crowd may have even knew these individuals. And so anyway, as he was teaching about this, he gives great insight into eternity. And so he says that the rich man lived like a king. He was feasting every day. It says that he fared sumptuously. So he was feasting every day. He had more than anyone could want. It says that he was uh, clothed in purple and fine linen. That was the, the clothing of royalty. Only rich people could afford these things. And so anyway, this man had everything. And by the Pharisees' estimation, God was really pleased with this man to bless him in such a way. And then we find that there is another man by the name of Lazarus who is seated out by his entrance to his 
uh, to his mansion, his palace. He's out on the, the footpath, if you will, by the gates of this man's uh, compound, and he is covered in sores. He is sick. He is begging. The dogs are his only friend, the only ones that have any compassion on him. And he is begging if he could just get scraps that fell from the rich man's table. And from what we see in this passage, apparently the rich man would not even give him the scraps. Though he had an abundance, he had more than what he needed, he couldn't spare even crumbs for this beggar. I can imagine him running the, the beggar away from his uh uh, from his skip whenever he'd throw his rubbish out. He would make sure, get away from there. We don't want these vagrants coming in. We don't want uh, to be feeding these guys because it's going to cause a problem. To this rich man, this beggar, this Lazarus, was a problem. He was an eyesore. He was an inconvenience. And so day by day, this rich man most likely looked out at Lazarus with scorn and with disdain. He didn't like the fact that Lazarus was there. And so Lazarus was begging, and finally it came to the point, maybe the, the illness, the disease, the infection got to him. Maybe he starved to death because he didn't get the crumbs. I don't know. But finally he died, and that was a relief to the rich man. He probably thought, I'm glad he's gone. I don't have to see him anymore. I don't have to be subjected to that sight anymore. And so anyway, he was glad he was gone. And sometime later, it doesn't tell us how long. It doesn't uh, tell us how long the rich man lived. But finally, the rich man's day came and the rich man died. And the rich man was buried. Lazarus, probably not. Maybe they carried him out to the local dump. I'm not sure. But anyway, Lazarus died. The rich man died and was buried. And if we just stop right there, the audience that was listening would think, this rich man, he lived such a great life. He was so blessed. He was uh, so benefited by all these things. God must have approved of him. God must have liked him. And Lazarus, I don't know what kind of a wicked man he was. I don't know what kind of sin he had in his background for God to punish him like he did. But he must have been an awful person. And if Jesus would have stopped there and said, where do you think they spent eternity? They would have bet on the the idea that this rich man went to heaven, that he was continued in his blessing, and Lazarus was punished for eternity. But we find that the opposite is true. This would have been shocking to his audience, and Jesus tells them that Lazarus was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom, that he was finally comforted, he was finally cared for, but the rich man opened up his eyes in hell being in torments. He doesn't get an, uh, an angel uh, entourage carrying him in there. Instead, he opens up his eyes and immediately is met with torments. And like I said, this would have been shocking to his audience. How is it that this man who is so great and rich and so blessed, how is it that he went to hell? Now, I want to say Jesus is not teaching that God hates rich people and loves poor people. I guess he does love poor people. He made plenty of them. But here's the thing. It wasn't about their wealth. It wasn't about their power, their position, their possessions, any of those things that had uh, the determining factor in their eternity. But like everyone who has ever lived, where they spent the eternity depended upon the faith that they placed in Christ. Okay? For the rich man, he had everything that he needed. For the rich man, he had all the things that this world could afford, he had no need for God. He didn't want to 
uh, even consider eternity because he was too busy enjoying the present time. But apparently, though it doesn't say, Lazarus must have known God. Lazarus must have been praying to God, must have been worshiping God, must have been believing in God, even in spite of his poverty, his disease, and his suffering. He was still looking to God. See, if we would have just stopped right there at verse number 22, and we would have said, okay, who do you want to be? Everyone would have chosen, I want to be the rich man. I want to fare sumptuously every day. I don't want sores. I don't want begging. I want wealth. But if we read the rest of the story, which one do you want to be? And so this is where whenever eternity comes into view, it changes our perspective completely. Whenever we realize that we are eternal beings, whenever we realize that this life down here below is just the beginning, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. The Bible says that our life here on this earth is but a vapor. It appears for a short time, it vanishes away. And whenever we can get a hold of that truth, it changes the way that we look at life. And this is what Jesus is trying to get across to these people because they said, we want to amass wealth. We want to get power. We want to get gain. We want to make ourselves something down here. And Jesus says, it's not about the wealth, the gain, the pleasures, and the enjoyment on this earth because when you close your eyes in death, all of that goes away. But what is really important is do you know God? And so these men, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they were very religious, but they were lost. They were banking upon their good works. They were banking upon all the things that they had done. They were banking on the fact that they were wealthy and that they were revered, but God didn't know them. This is something that's amazing to me about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. God doesn't know the rich man's name. You realize that? This is just kind of a little bit of a side note here. But all throughout the story, Jesus says there was a certain rich man, never says his name. But you remember how recently Jesus was teaching and says, I know my sheep and my sheep are known of me. And he says, but there was a man named Lazarus. I know him. Right? That rich man, he's not one of mine. He's not one of my sheep. I don't know him, but I know Lazarus. And that's amazing to me. And so he is bringing these things out to these, these religious people, these Pharisees, who think that because of their good works, because of their power and their position, that they're a shoe in for heaven, he is saying it's not about that. And whenever they are looking down uh, condemningly, condescendingly upon all of the, the poor and upon all of the ones that are hurting and all the ones that are damaged and all the ones that are broken, whenever they are looking down and saying they deserve hell, he says, be very careful because you may be the one that ends up in hell while they go to heaven. Because God sees things from a completely different perspective than what mankind does. And so whenever this man opened up his eyes in hell being in torments, there are many people in this world who want to deny that there is a hell. They don't want to even entertain the idea. But there is one thing that we know for sure from this is that Jesus believed in hell and the rich man did too. And so in life, the rich man wouldn't spare a crumb for Lazarus. And now he's begging Lazarus for just a drop of water. How the tables have changed, right? And so as these Pharisees, as these wealthy religious men were caught up in this life and in this world, they were blinded to eternity. And so what I want to look at today, just a few points here, I want us to allow this passage to help us to view life in light of eternity because I believe that if we 
pull ourselves out of our fascination, out of our uh, focus on this life and on this world, and we see that we are eternal beings destined for an eternal destiny, we're going to change the way that we live, the way that we view life, okay? So the first thing that I see in this passage is, and I know I've kind of already covered this a little bit, but whenever we realize that there is an eternity before us, whenever we realize there is a heaven or a hell that we are going to spend our eternity in, it's going to change how we view success. It changes how we view success. The verse that comes to mind is, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Basically, what that verse is telling us is you can be the most wealthy person. You can be the most powerful ruler. And if you don't know Jesus, you have lost it all. That the things of this earth, whenever you close your eyes in death, vanish away. They're gone. And the only things that go before you, the only things that go into eternity, are the works that you have done, the things that you have done for the cause of Christ. And so you can accumulate wealth, you can accumulate power, you can accumulate riches, you can be the most successful in the world, excuse me, the most successful person in the world, but if you don't know Christ, all of it is meaningless, all of it is worthless. And so as this world is portraying what success is, it's climbing the corporate ladder, it's having the biggest house, it's driving the nicest car, it is being known of people, being revered and respected by people. It is having power and possessions, and that's what the world sees as success. Parents are looking at their children, and they're wanting their children to be successful, and they're saying you have to go to university. You have to get one of these possessions where you're one of these professions. There you go. One of these professions that you're going to become wealthy, that you're going to become respected, you're going to become powerful. But here's the thing. If my children... I grow up and they become the most successful in their field, if they uh, earn huge paychecks, if they live in the greatest house and they don't know Jesus, that is not success. If they have everything that this world has to offer, they are not successful unless they are preparing for the next life, unless they are laying up riches that will not corrupt and will not fade away. And there's plenty of things in this life that draws our attention. There are things to be enjoyed. There's things to be obtained. Even whenever God created this world, whenever he created this earth, he created things for our enjoyment. He didn't mean for this to be a drudgery. He didn't mean for this life to be miserable. He gave us a wonderful world to live in and things to enjoy. But this isn't the end. This isn't what it's about. That's only part of it. See, we're basically in the vehicle that's leading to the destination. If you're having uh, more fun on the trip than where you're going, I, I think there might be a problem with your destination, right? But anyway, uh, there's all these things that we're surrounded by. We're surrounded by materialism, and society pushes you to do more, to press harder. You're evaluated by your position, by your possessions. And with all of these things that are constantly drawing our focus, eternity seems so far away. It's hard for us to process. It's hard for us to lay hold on the fact that there is an eternity before us, right? But as I said there a moment ago, if we took away verse 22 and onward, we would all want to be the rich man. But as soon as we see what happened to the rich man, how all of those things that he had faded away and were gone, no one would want to be him. See, eternity changes how we view success. 
If you're a believer here, if you're a Christian, that means that you believe in eternity. You believe that there is a God. You believe there is a heaven. You believe there is a hell. You believe that everyone on this earth is going to spend their eternity in one of those two places. But most of us tuck that away in the back of our mind. Most of us forget about that. And most of us do not live like we're eternal beings. Most of us do not live like there's a heaven before us. But whenever we realize that this life is, as I said, is but a vapor, eternity lies ahead, it should change how we measure success. We're informed that all of our works are going to be tried by fire to see what manner they be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. And it says that all those that are done by uh, done for ourselves, done by our flesh, are going to be burned up. They're going to pass away, wood, hay, and stubble. But the gold, silver, and precious stones, all of the things that we have done for the cause of Christ in service to our, to our God, in view of eternity, those things are going to last for eternity. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, Jesus challenges his followers to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt and thieves cannot break through and steal. He challenges them to do that. And he tells us we can, we can pile up treasures, we can lay up treasures for ourselves for the future, but it is not silver and gold. It's not uh, possessions. It's not professions. It's not all these things, but it is what we have done for Christ. It's what we've done in light of eternity. So true success is not power and prosperity, but walking with God and leading others to do likewise. So whenever we see life in light of eternity, it also changes how we view our struggles. It changes how we view our struggles. Because as we look at this, this man named Lazarus knew God, was walking with God, but he was struggling, he was suffering intensely in his life on this earth. But because he knew that this life was temporary, because he knew that the struggles and the troubles and the pain was temporary, it changed his view of it. He was able to go through the hardship. He was able to go through the difficulties because he said, this isn't all there is to it. This isn't the end of it. We've been looking at the Apostle Paul in our Sunday school class. And with Apostle Paul, he is going through great trials and troubles. He has been beaten. He has been stoned. He's been abandoned by even his closest friends and allies we see that he eventually ends up spending years in prison and finally he is martyred and he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, whenever this life is over, it's just begun. Whenever I close my eyes in death, Jesus has already promised me that he is going to prepare a place for me and he's coming again to receive me unto himself. And so whenever I close my eyes in death, all of the pain, all the heartaches, all the struggles of this life will be behind me. I won't have to worry about that. It says there's going to be no sin. There's going to be no parting. There's going to be no suffering whenever we get over there. And whenever we view life in light of eternity, we see this as just temporary. There's often questions that are raised. I don't know if, you, if you're on social media or anything very often. Could you endure this? Could you go through this situation or this hardship for a million euros. You ever see those questions posed like that? Saw one yesterday. It had a picture of like a, a serene lake and a little uh, a little cabin and a little bench there. And it's like, could you do away without internet for so long of a period of time in this place? Okay. There's this idea of, could you endure something for this amount of time, for this kind of a reward? 
You all have seen these kind of things, right? Shake your head or something, I don't know. <laughs> and in a way, this is what we're looking at here. Whenever we realize that heaven awaits before us, we are already the children of God. We are children of the King. We have a, a good heavenly Father. We're just temporarily separated from our wealth and from our riches, right? Whenever we look at it in light of that, the trials that we go through, we say, I can, I can handle that if heaven lies ahead. I can go through a little bit of discomfort. I can go through some trials. I can be hated by some people. I can be misunderstood by some people. I can deal with some of these troubles here on this, on this earth and in this life because heaven is just on the other side. You look back through church history and uh, some of the, the heroes of the faith, if you will, people who went to the stake, people who were crucified, people who were uh, shot and killed and hung and all these different things, because of their faith, they were willing to be tied to the stake and burn alive. They were willing to suffer all kinds of things because they knew that heaven was just before them. And so they said temporary suffering, eternal enjoyment and glory with God. And so eternity changes our view of our struggles. Because if we're just living in the moment, if we're just living in this life, we have the idea, if this is all there is to it, then what's the point of living whenever suffering comes, right? Many people despair. There's an epidemic of suicide. There's depression, all these different things. And people say, why is life even worth living because of the difficulties we go through? But when we realize there is a God that loves us, that died for us, and that we're going to spend eternity with him, what? This isn't so bad, right? It changes our view. It changes our perspective whenever we see heaven that lies ahead. Heaven is the blessed hope of the believer. The third thing we see doesn't just change our view of success and our view of our struggles. It changes how we view souls. It changes how we view souls. Now, in this passage that we read, whenever this man realized that his eternity was settled, that there was nothing that he could do about it. He petitioned Abraham, and he says, I have five brethren. Send Lazarus that he can be a witness to my brethren so that they don't come here. Whenever he realized that there was a hell and it wasn't a good place to be at, he says, I don't want anyone else to come. The only one in hell that wants more people in hell is the devil. I don't believe that there is a lost person who has died and went to hell and says, yeah, send more people this way. They don't want anyone to be there. They don't want to be there themselves. I told recently about uh, a video that I had seen a, a girl who had said to all the Christians, we don't want to hear the gospel. Just let us go to hell. You're not responsible for us. Just let us go to hell. But one of these days, if she doesn't change, if she doesn't repent, if she doesn't get saved, she's going to open up her eyes in hell being in torments. And I don't say that with any kind of pleasure or joy whatsoever. She is going to open up her eyes there and she is going to say, I was foolish for rejecting Christ. I don't want to be here. I don't want anyone else to be here. Okay. And so whenever this rich man realized that his eternity was settled, he became interested in the souls of others. And if you believe what the Bible says, if you believe that there is a hell and that Jesus died to keep people from going there, we should have a desire to keep people from going there. It took this man going to hell to realize, I don't want even my, 
my family, and I'd say he wouldn't even want his worst enemy going to that place, but he says, I need to do something to keep people from going there. It became a priority. It became important all of a sudden to keep others from going there. Jesus' final commission whenever he left this earth was to go into all the world and be ye witnesses of me. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Tell everyone I died for them. I died to pay for their sins and they don't have to go to hell. I made a way of escape. Go and tell everybody about it. And if you believe what you say that you believe, it should change how you view other people, how you view other souls. Every person you come in contact with is an eternal being that is going to spend eternity somewhere. And so how can we be callous and uncaring whenever so many of the people that we love, so many of the people that we're around are going to spend an eternity separated from God in a place like that? When they don't have to. Jesus has made a way for them to escape and he has given us the, the commission to go and tell them. The fourth thing that we see in this, it changes how we view Scripture. It changes how we view Scripture. And what I mean by that is Abraham responded to this rich man whenever he said, send Lazarus to tell my brethren about this. Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He's referring to the scripture. He's referring to the Old Testament. That's how they referred to the Old Testament was Moses and the prophets. He says they have the word of God. Let them hear the word of God. And the rich man says, no, they, they won't listen to that, but they would listen if someone rose from the dead. They would listen if there was a miracle that took place. They're not going to hear the scripture, but they need something miraculous to convince them. And Abraham responds and says, if they will not hear the scripture, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, they will not believe though someone rose from the dead. And we know that to be a fact because it is proven twice over that not too long after this, there is going to be an actual man by the name of Lazarus that comes back from the dead and they try to kill him again. They refuse to hear what he has to say and they actually set out to try to kill him again. And then Jesus rises from the dead and they deny that as well. And so they're not going to believe though someone rose from the dead. It comes back to scripture that the word of God that we have before us, the word of God that we can read, that we can hold in our hand is sufficient. It tells us all that we need to know. It tells us how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It tells us how we can escape the eternity in hell and how we can spend an eternity in heaven simply by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We find all of the, all of the works that God has done throughout the Old Testament to bring about this way of salvation. We see how men messed up all the way back in the Garden of Eden how they plunged all mankind into, uh, into sin and into all of this suffering, and how God immediately went to work bringing about this lineage, this, this uh, nation, if you will, from which Jesus Christ would be born, that he would be raised up, that he would testify, that he would show that he was truly the Son of God, and he would be crucified and rose the third day. All of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament comes together, gives us all that we need to know so that we can know him. And that should give us a love and appreciation for scripture. All the work that God put in this book to put it in our hands so that we can know him 
and so we can tell others about him. Eternity makes this book so spectacular for us, so important to us, but yet we neglect it. We get so caught up in this world, this book is not important. We take our eyes off of eternal things, this book isn't important. But when we realize that there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a God, there is an eternal home for us, this book becomes more and more precious. And the final thing that I have for us today is whenever we're living in light of eternity, it's going to change how we view our Savior. There is nothing that I could do to merit eternal life. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I would be helpless and hopeless without any chance whatsoever of escaping that horrible place that that rich man went to if it wasn't for Jesus. It's not that God is cruel. It's not that God is angry. It's not that he's vengeful or hateful, that he would send someone to hell. Plenty of people have raised that question. How could a loving God send someone to hell? God has never sent a single person to hell. He has done everything he could to keep us from that place. Even coming down to this earth, bleeding and dying, being abused and raising the third day, he has made every means necessary for us to escape, but he has gave us the choice to reject him or accept him. He doesn't force a single person to get saved, but he has done everything he can to keep them from being lost. But at the end of the day, it is up to each person to make that decision. And so for me as a Christian, whenever I realize that I'm an eternal being, that I'm going to spend eternity somewhere, and every single other person is as well, it makes me so thankful, so grateful that God so loved a sinner like me. Because I did. I deserved hell. I sinned and came short of the glory of God. I did things that went contrary to God and to his word and to his creation. And I deserve to go to hell because God is also a just God and sin must be punished. But it, Jesus took that punishment upon himself. He paid the price for me. He loved me that much that he would do all of that so I could go to heaven, so that I could be with him. Honestly, I wouldn't give a whole lot for me, but he gave his life for me so that I could be with him. Doesn't eternity give us a different perspective on so many things? What the world calls success, it's not success. Because if I do all the things and I'm the most important person in the world and I don't know God, I've not been successful. I can suffer all of the things down here on this world. I can uh, be martyred for my faith, but eternity will make it all worth it. Eternity will make it all a distant memory. And Lazarus, whenever he was in Abraham's bosom, he wasn't thinking about the sores. He wasn't thinking about the hunger. He was thinking about his Savior that made it possible for him to be there gives us a different view on souls. I don't want anyone to go to hell. I want everyone to experience what I have. I want everyone to know the God that I know. I want everyone to go to heaven where I'm going to go. And I want them to know the Savior that I know. And so it gives us a, an appreciation. It changes our, our way of looking at these things.
So don't forget that there is an eternity ahead. It's something glorious for the believer, and it's something for the lost man to dread and to fear. But as I said, the great news about that, lost man doesn't have to stay lost. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So with that being said, we're eternal creatures. We have a good God, a loving God. It's not about the works that we have done. It's not about our wealth, our riches, not even about our morality. It's about what he has done. We serve a great Savior. He has a great eternity for us. And we have a great commission to go out and tell folks that they don't have to go to that place. So that is our challenge today. Live life in light of eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you so much, Lord, for this passage, Lord, and how it uh, kind of pulls back the curtain and lets us see uh, a glimpse of what it's like in eternity. Uh, it lets us see a, a glimpse into heaven and to hell. And we thank you, Lord, that you've made a way that, uh, that we don't have to go to hell. You've made a way for us to go to heaven. We thank you for that. We thank you for your word that reveals that to us. And we just ask you, help us to live in light of eternity. I pray if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, if they've never put their faith and trust in you and the price that you paid on Calvary, I pray, Lord, that they would call upon you, that they would put their faith and trust in you, and that they would be saved today. Lord, if there's one here today that has uh, just been so distracted by this life and by this world, Help them, Lord, to see that this world is only the beginning and help them to live for the things that are truly eternal, the things that truly last, the things that truly matter. Lord, we do love you. We thank you. We praise you for all that you do and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen.